Our scripture lesson this morning, friends, comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. I invite you to join me in hearing these words from Genesis. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed they were at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth, to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children as well as your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come into poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon him. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. If you've been hanging out with us for a few weeks, this is a very abrupt conclusion to the lectionary's telling of Joseph and his family's like dramatic novella, essentially. If you haven't been here, that's okay. We're gonna do a very quick rundown. Um, I don't know if anyone here was a Glee fan when that was on, yes? Okay, so I was in high school when Glee was on. I know, some of you were like, you baby child. <laughs> I was a high schooler, a very um, closeted liberal. <laughs> is a good way to put it, in Alamance County, and I and all of my friends, who later all came out, um, loved Glee. Um, we would watch it weekly. I graduated from high school the same year the Glee kids graduated high school, and so I really, really resonated with these 30-year-old actors graduating from high school. Um, I loved that show, and I re-watched it as an adult and was like, this is not good. <laughs> 
do not rewatch it now. It, it, it does not age well. Um, but at the time, I loved this show. And one of the things this show did really well was in a very like quick two minutes retell you everything that's ever happened on the series at the very beginning of an episode. Do you remember this? Okay, so that's what we're gonna attempt to do right now is a very quick glee rerun of what has happened in Joseph's life so far. So far, Joseph, we have learned, comes from a difficult family, a dysfunctional family, and it's a family that perhaps many of us are familiar with. Joseph is the grandson of Abraham, technically the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham gave birth to Jacob, or sorry, Abraham gave birth to Isaac, who fathered Jacob and Esau, and Jacob fathered Joseph. Joseph comes from a line of blessed people, a line of patriarchs, and he also comes from a line of people who just keep doing each other wrong. A family that doesn't know how to exist in healthy ways or communicate with each other. Joseph's grandfather, Jacob, stole his own brother's blessing Jacob experienced the pain of being his father's least favorite son. And Jacob repeats the pattern with Joseph. He marries, as he gets older, he finds reconciliation with Esau in a beautifully transformative moment. He stole his own brother's blessing and then his brother blesses him. Jacob goes through this transformation and is renamed Israel. Jacob, while he has this moment of reconciliation and growth, still repeats harmful patterns that his own father committed. He himself has a favorite son. The baby of the family born in his old age, Joseph. And if you were with us last week, this is the part of the story we heard. Joseph is Jacob's favorite. He has a special long-sleeved robe. He has visions. He is a seemingly obnoxious younger sibling. And out of anger and desperation to also be favored, Joseph's brothers plot to murder him and sell him into slavery. That was the cliffhanger that the lectionary left us on last week. There is a family legacy of doing harm, a family legacy of being told by God, this is what you should do, and then doing the opposite. Abraham does this when he tries to create his own blessing. Isaac does this. Jacob does this. And now we have Joseph and his brothers. In the midst of the promised land they are living, in the midst of God's goodness, in a time of prosperity, and still they struggle to accept the goodness of God in each other. Joseph's brothers, out of dysfunction and envy and chaos, sell him into slavery. And now, the lectionary jumps us ahead really far We've gone like 20 chapters in advance, and we're probably wondering what just happened. 
We left off with Joseph being sold into slavery and the lectionary picks back up where he seems to be reunited with his brothers. Like what happened in between? And I'm here to tell you a lot. What happened in between? How did Joseph go from slavery to seemingly living in Pharaoh's palace? He deems himself the father of Pharaoh, which we know he is not. So here's what happened in between. Joseph's brothers put the blood of an animal on his special robe and took it back to his father, devastating Jacob. The scripture shows over and over again, if you read through it, that Jacob is completely heartbroken. His beloved son, his baby, is gone. And to some extent, Jacob probably blames himself because he was the one who sent Joseph to go check up on his brothers and then Joseph never returned. Joseph's brothers continue on with their own lives. They continue to grow up, they marry. If you want to read what might be the weirdest birth story in the Bible, you should check out Genesis 38. I know immaculate conception sounds wild, but in Genesis 38, Joseph's brother Judah and his wife are expecting twins, and one of the twins begins to be born, retreats back, and then the other twin is born. Weird. Very strange. It's also born wearing a bracelet, which makes no sense. Joseph's brothers grow, they create their own legacies, they build their own families, and in the meantime, Joseph makes his way to Egypt. And he's sold to a man named Potiphar, who is the captain of the palace guard. And Joseph is extremely successful as a slave. It doesn't quite make sense. Potiphar notices that Joseph has these special visions, this gift of interpreting dreams. And so scripture said, Potiphar decides Joseph is blessed, that God is with him. He notices Joseph is one of those people who tends to be lucky and good at everything. And so he puts him in charge of his household and everything he owns. And Joseph is doing pretty well until Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him because according to scripture, he's quite a looker, which is a weird fun fact. But Joseph refuses her. And so she takes revenge against him by framing him for a crime and Joseph is thrown in prison. But once again, Joseph is weirdly successful. Scripture tells us that he befriends the prison guard, the warden of the prison, and people frequently come to him seeking his gifts, wanting him to interpret their dreams and visions. So that eventually, Pharaoh himself is in need of Joseph's talents. Pharaoh has a dream, a vision he doesn't understand. And hearing from some of his palace workers of Joseph's gifts, he calls Joseph from prison and asks him to interpret his own dreams. And Joseph tells him what it means that the next seven years will be a time of prosperity in this kingdom, but the seven years to follow will be a time of scarcity and famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's abilities. He's so impressed by Joseph's suggestions of how to handle this difficult situation that Pharaoh says to him, 
God has revealed the meaning of this dream to you. No one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than you. And so very quickly, Joseph is escalated, elevated into this position of massive power. And also elevated into the position of doing all of Pharaoh's work for him while Pharaoh sits on the throne and says, I am still in charge. Joseph's jobs becomes saving this entire kingdom, prepping them for seven years of famine. Joseph, it's your job to do the strategizing and make me look good. In the meantime, Joseph's family begins to struggle. Jacob continues to mourn. Scripture tells us he is up in age. And Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And he's heartbroken to the point that as his family struggles and famine begins to ravage seven years into Joseph's work, that when his children say, we need to go and ask Pharaoh for help, Jacob refuses to let all of them go. Joseph's only full blood brother is Benjamin. And Benjamin is the other baby. And Jacob refuses to let Benjamin leave the household and the property. Out of fear, he'll lose his other baby. Out of fear that he and his wife will lose their only living son. But seeking to aid their family from starvation, Joseph's brothers insist Benjamin come with them. And together they all go to the palace hoping to be saved, not knowing the person responsible for saving them is the one whom they betrayed at this point like 10 years earlier. When they arrive, Joseph recognizes him Joseph recognizes them, but he doesn't immediately reveal himself. Instead, he asks about his father, the head of this family, and he learns that he's still alive. And then he sees Benjamin's face, and he dismisses himself from the room and goes and weeps in private. For his only full brother is standing before him, and all of his other half-brothers are standing there too. Eventually they leave and Joseph, being Joseph, makes a plan. He slips a silver cup from the palace into Benjamin's bag so that as they leave, all of the brothers are stopped and Benjamin is arrested for stealing. At which point, Joseph watches the way his brothers respond to another's persecution wondering, will they too dispose of him as if they disposed of me? They respond differently. Simon, the brother who was a major part of plotting Joseph's demise, offers himself in Benjamin's place. He says, take me, I will be your slave for the rest of my life if you just let my brother go free. For my father has suffered great heartache and he does not need to suffer this one. 
That is where we are in our scripture today, friends. That is everything that has happened leading up to what we read today. Joseph has come incredibly far and also can't really get away from what he's been through. Joseph's family has also come incredibly far. His brothers have grown up in age, they've started their own families, and they seem to have changed to some extent. They've been through their own difficulty, they've seen the pain they've caused their own father to live with every single day. And when given the same choice, they make a very different one. And so at this point, we pick up in today's scripture and Joseph throws all of his attendants out. So he's alone with his brothers and he can no longer contain himself and he weeps so loudly, even those who have left can hear him. And he reveals himself to his brothers, seeing a fresh valuing of life that they did not have before. Seeing that they did not throw Benjamin into slavery, that they did not abandon him, but rather Simon, the one who led the enslavement of Joseph, volunteers to take Benjamin's place. Seeing that they have to some extent changed, Joseph tells them who he is. He tells them that he knows of the famine and the struggle of the grief that they have been living in for two years now. And he tells them, I will take care of you. But not before he asks if his father's really alive. His brothers at this point don't believe him, right? How could this be? It's been over 10 years since we sold this man into slavery when he was just probably a young boy, a teenager. And so he tells them, come closer. I am your brother whom you sold into slavery. Joseph in this story responds in what I think for most of us is an incredibly strange and possibly even uncomfortable way. In fact, I would say not even possibly, it should make us uncomfortable. <laughs> because Joseph just immediately offers them forgiveness and grace. He tells them that everything they did is okay. And this is the most wild part of this story. Just as Joseph's uncle Esau once welcomed his own father Joseph welcomes his brothers in this very strange, unconditional love. He offers them forgiveness. And there's so much beauty in that. So much beauty in Joseph's ability to do that. And also, friends, we have to sit in the discomfort of what Joseph explains to be the cause of his own suffering. Joseph tells them he's not angry at them. He tells them he's not upset. He tells them, don't be angry for selling me to this place because it was God who wanted me here. It was God who put me here so that I could preserve your lives. God sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive so that you may survive. God put me in slavery 
not you. I am the one who advises to Pharaoh because of God. I'm the manager of this entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Joseph makes sense of what is happening to him in a deeply unsettling way, friends. He looks at his entire life situation and his experience and he tells his brothers it all worked out well and that God wanted this for him. And we have to sit in what I would say is the duality of that. Joseph is a person who's had limited experience. He's a person who's lived in deep pain and suffering and he's made sense of that deep pain and suffering in the way that makes sense to him. And that is to say, God wanted this for me. And we have to honor that Joseph made sense of it in the way that he did while we also say, Joseph, I don't think that's true. This idea that God would will someone to be enslaved, this idea that God would will this incredibly awful level of suffering is something that we know theologically just is not true. It's a dangerous idea Joseph draws on his own limited understanding of how God works in the world. He comforts his own pain in the way that he finds most comforting. And the idea that slavery was ordained by God and served him well is a dangerous one, friends. It's an idea that can be used to validate people who argue slavery wasn't bad and it served people well. It's an idea that can be used to say God, in fact, condoned this and willed this as good. This theological argument historically was used by anti-abolitionists to continue to allow suffering and slavery to live in the world. And it's had a massive resurgence recently in rhetoric, in pulpits, in educational systems. It is a dangerous idea, friends. And here's the difference we need to pay attention to. The way Joseph makes sense of his own suffering is his. But it's not the way we make sense of all people's suffering. And it shouldn't be weaponized to therefore allow us to cause suffering. Joseph makes sense of his situation in the best way he can. He comforts himself in pain and that's something we all do. There are so many people that when things happen, they say, everything happens for a reason. God wanted this for me. What is the one God gives his toughest battles to his strongest warriors? That's my least favorite. I hate that. Because I'm like, Jesus, just let me rest. <laughs> let me drink coffee. Like, if this is real, this, no. This is not a thing. Theologically, we know this is not how God works. That God is a God of goodness. That God only ever creates goodness. That God doesn't will suffering or oppression of any people. In fact, what God is doing in the story of Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and Isaac is constantly trying to liberate these people 
to heal their rifts with each other and to bring them in closer. Unfortunately, they are human. And sometimes their way of responding to that is by going in the opposite direction and doing the opposite thing and making sense of God's will in very confusing ways. Joseph interprets his own story in the way he does, and truthfully, Joseph probably needs therapy. He has suffered. And my guess is he has just put his head down and kept going and never truly processed what his own family did to him. Because scripture tells us Joseph's brothers did it. It wasn't God. And Joseph seems to struggle with that truth. The truth is his brothers did sell him into slavery. And the truth is Joseph still finds love and forgiveness and the ability to welcome them. He still finds the will to take care of them when they could not take care of him. And perhaps for him, just seeing them love his brother in the way they couldn't love him is enough. Perhaps even if they're not the best of people, he doesn't want to watch them die. Perhaps even if he doesn't have love for his brothers, he doesn't want them to suffer. And even if he would will suffering for his brothers, perhaps he knows they now have wives and children of their own who shouldn't have to pay for his brother's sins. While Joseph has this ability to make sense of something and move forward in the way that we view as absolutely insane. His brothers don't have this same ability. They are shocked and confused and perhaps expecting revenge at any moment. Joseph tells them, go tell my father I am alive so that he might embrace his father again. He hugs them, he weeps with them, he takes care of them. And his brothers never fully accept this forgiveness. If you continue to read past 45, Joseph's story goes all the way to 50, to the death of Jacob, to the death of Israel. And what it tells us is his brothers are kind of always looking over their shoulder expecting things to end badly, expecting Joseph to retract his love. While Joseph is able to forgive them, they seem to never be able to live into that forgiveness or to fully reconcile with him. And the truth is, while this story is beautiful, in some ways it's also incredibly messy and ugly in other ways. Joseph's way of making sense of things is uncomfortable. We certainly can argue Joseph is being exploited by the people in power as they pull him out of prison only to rule the whole country and I'm sure if he messes up, they're gonna put him right back in it. While Joseph seems to save people, it's only for the short term. Joseph's plan is a sharecropping plan it's one where the farmers and the people of Israel, where his own family gives their land over to Pharaoh, 
so that they might be taken care of. And eventually, this leads to Joseph's entire family and all of their descendants to become enslaved. It's Joseph's own plan that leads to the enslavement of Israel that we then come upon in Exodus. Joseph's plan to save his people, his best attempt to care for his family, ends in their enslavement eventually. This is a difficult story, friends. And it's one where it's hard to find God sometimes. But I think there's a few things we can glean from it and we can glean from Joseph, and that is that sometimes we only see God from our own limited understanding. Sometimes we only see God from our own experiences and our own truths. And we need to remember that that's not universal. That what we have done to make sense of the things in our lives doesn't make it universally true. We can take from Joseph the understanding that how we cope and understand life, how we see God in the world, doesn't mean that's true for everyone. And it might not even mean it's actually true. It's just us doing our best. And that, friends, is the importance of community and learning and hearing other people's experiences and holding them as true too. As we listen to this nitty gritty messed up story to this incredibly dysfunctional family that is just gonna continue to be dysfunctional for the entire rest of the Bible. It is a continuous narrative. This cycle of Abraham trying and messing up and straying and then Isaac doing the same and then Jacob doing the same and then Joseph doing the same it just keeps repeating itself to the end of scripture. Like that's the spoiler alert here. It's a cycle of transformation, of people coming closer to God, of people living in joy and prosperity, and then eventually people messing up and doing harm and misunderstanding God's will for them and those around them. And then people finding God is still amongst them. And so they shift back towards being closer to God again and they just keep going through that same cycle. And then Jesus comes. God is enfleshed in front of them. And they still get it wrong, friends. Scripture, Joseph's story, Jacob's story, it's the story of humanity and God throughout the entirety of history. At the bottom line, it's a story which tells the truth of humanity and that is that we are incredibly dysfunctional, that we're really good at harming each other, that we're good at exploiting each other, that sometimes we're capable of great good and grace and forgiveness. And at every moment, God is showing up and trying to pull us back in. Even if we look at this mess and wonder, where is God? We're reminded God doesn't just move in the miracles, but also in the mundane. 
that at every moment in the midst of this mess, God is working to bring forth goodness. That in the worst of suffering, God is working towards liberation. This is the good news of this scripture, friends. It's not tidy, it's not easy, and at points it's not really good news. It makes us confront perhaps some of our own bad theologies and wonder why do people suffer? And the best answer is people suffer because of other people. And somewhere in the midst of that, God is doing good work to end it. And while we probably will be going through this same cycle of harm for the rest of eternity, until the world ends or Jesus comes back or both, there is a way to do better, to learn from the cycles and to do our best to resist the falling into the same cycle, to know that God is present trying to bring forth goodness and to know that we are capable of incredible grace. Thanks be to God. At this time, friends, I'd like to invite you to join me for our communion liturgy, which is found on page 12 in your hymnals. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.